The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. In the movie Forrest Gump, the actor Tom Hanks plays Forrest, who's a southern boy who comes of age in the 1960s. His title of the movie suggests Forrest is the main character, but do you remember his friend Jenny, I believe her name was, the little girl who famously cried out, run, Forrest, run, when the boys were picking on you. Remember that? Jenny also grows up in the 1960s and the 70s, but her path is quite a bit different than Forrest's. Even if you've never seen the movie, you can imagine this. She becomes heavily immersed in the music and drug and protest culture of that era. And as we watch the film, we see her move from scene to scene to scene, seemingly looking everywhere for love and significance in life, looking for that, searching for it in all the wrong places and not finding it. Eventually she comes back and she settles down with Forrest, but it's a bittersweet reunion. The seeds that were sown earlier in life bear their fruit, and she dies young. What a sorrowful thing her story is. Chasing fulfillment and life and joy and pleasure in the things of the world. How about you? Where do you look for life? and joy and pleasure and significance and security and fulfillment. Where do you look for it? It's pretty easy for us to point the finger at the Jennies of the world and say, you shouldn't do that stuff. But you know what? There is more of Jenny in our heart than we sometimes care to admit. We are not that far from her. In each of our hearts, even the hearts of those of us here this morning who do know Christ, which is most of us, I reckon, our hearts, too, are also prone to wander, to look all over for happiness and joy and fulfillment. We look everywhere for it. The problem is not in looking for that, in searching for that, though. The problem is in where we look for it, where we search for it. The Psalms talk about seeking this type of life. They expect us to want it, to want to chase after it. Called it the life of blessedness, the life of hope and peace and security, all going on in here, rest in here, despite what's going on out there. The Psalms talk about that everywhere. They tell us to look for it. They tell us where to find it. And Psalm 16 is no exception, our text this morning. Psalm 16 also talks about that. In vivid and compelling language, it holds out to us joy and gladness and happiness tells us to look for it and tells us where to look for it this is one of clearly one of my favorite psalms i love psalm 16 spend a lot of time in it and the reason that i love it is because i desperately want to be joyful in life i want that and this psalm is shot through with these themes. Happiness and gladness. It's everywhere in Psalm 16. Do you want that? Do you want that life? 
my hope and my prayer has been that God would enthrall you with this poem this morning. He'd grab you with it and draw you in. And that you'd be motivated to spend more time in Psalm 16 than we're going to spend this morning. Don't let this be the last time you look at it. There is much here. We're just going to scratch the surface. I'm going to read Psalm 16 and then we'll walk back through it to give it a bit of a chance to sink in. And then I'm going to talk about two main points that I think emerge out of it. So let me begin by reading Psalm 16. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The word of the Lord. So we pass back through this passage and, and touch on just some of the things that can arise to the surface. I'd like to, you to notice how central the Lord is to all this and what the response is is in the psalmist to this God. It should be pretty obvious. Look for that. The passage opens with a request. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. And in verse 2 he says the Lord, you yourself. And there's an emphasis on the you. You, Lord, you yourself are my Lord. You, the God of the Bible, are the one who is my leader, my master. You're the one that I follow. I take refuge in you, not in someone else. And he adds, in fact, I'm acknowledging that I have no good thing in life apart from you. He sees God as a sphere. And within that sphere, and only in that sphere, is where any good is. Outside of him, nothing. He's really clear about that. And so he doesn't want to follow along with the verse 4 people who are going to chase after other gods and look for good somewhere else because there isn't any good there. He's really clear about that. Instead, he wants to cling to the verse 3 people, the saints in the land the ones who agree with him and will encourage him to pursue God and good in God. As we look at these first four verses together, I think, I'm persuaded that the good that, he, that the good that he's pursuing primarily is a preserving by God, a preserving from some attack or challenge, seeking refuge. It's not clear what he's seeking refuge from. It doesn't say. 
So it's left open to apply to many different attacks and temptations. But I think verse 4 points us towards something. The temptation he's thinking of is the temptation to draw after and pursue after other gods. He's not going to do that. He's clear, yet there's a draw in it. There's a temptation. So God, preserve me from that. Pour good on me to keep me from it, please. And what follows in verse 5 are many reasons to not run after other gods. Verse 5. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. The ESV and the NAS translations are accurate here. The Lord is, not the Lord has assigned. He is the portion and cup. He himself, the chosen portion of my life. Picture a situation where somebody chooses up or divvies up something and then dishes it out. Like imagine the tribes coming into Israel when the land was all divided and then assigned to them. Or maybe picture a banquet where a server is, is scooping onto plates the meal. Some for you, some for you, some for you. That's what's going on here. The plate set in front of you then, or, or the map of your territory is given to you. And what does he find? He finds my chosen portion. The section for me, chosen for me, not by me. The lines have fallen for me, he says in the next verse. Somebody else picked the lines. Somebody else drew the map. The portion chosen for me. My portion is the Lord himself. My chosen portion, my cup, the thing that I have to feast on, the thing that I have to satisfy my thirst, is God himself given to me. He gives himself to me, and then he holds my lot, or he preserves it. A lot, as in my lot in life, my portion. It's given to him, but you know, sometimes what's given to you can be taken away from you by trickery or by force. That's not going to happen here, though. It's not going to be taken away because God himself preserves, defends him, holds this lot for him. And oh, what a beautiful inheritance it is. Look at verse 6. Look how he describes this. He's using the language of land, but it's not a physical inheritance given to him. It's the Lord from verse 5. But he uses this imagery of land. Look what he's given. The boundary lines have fallen for me in marvelous places. I have a beautiful inheritance. Picture somebody looking out over the land of Israel before it's divvied up for them. And you look out and you see, oh, over there, there's a grove of some fabulous fruit trees. It'd be neat if that was on my property. And over here, there is abundant fresh water. That's pretty desirable. And over here, I think there are some deposits of gold. And here, right in the middle, all this fertile land that we could grow crops on, we could graze our sheep on. Wow, this is, there's a lot of marvelous stuff around here. I wonder what we're going to get. And then the map is given to him, and he begins to study it. And he says, oh, look, the east line falls right there, and the fruit trees are on my land. And the water over here, mine too. And the gold and the fertile soil, all of it is on my land. What an inheritance I have. The boundary lines have fallen for me in marvelous places. Look at this. What a chosen portion I have. All given to him. Held for him. Given to you, held for you, never to be lost. Assured for you by the mighty hand of God. What a beauty. Just look at it. 
Look at Him. Look at Him. The Lord Himself is your beautiful inheritance. He is the heritage given to you. It's not stuff. It's not actually fruit trees and gold and water. It's Him. His stunning beauty. In His marvelous glory. He is the portion given to you. Preserved for you. He cries out, Preserve me, O God. And God says, Look at me. Your beautiful inheritance. And so David does. He looks at him and he moves on into verse 7 and he says, I will bless the Lord. I will declare, Lord, you are good and wonderful. Why? Well, just look at you. You're beautiful. And what you do for me is you guide my steps. You teach me. You direct my path so that I can follow in your way, follow after you, and keep close to you. He gives counsel to his children. Wisdom in the course of life. When we stray, then in the evenings he corrects us. The imagery here is the sun is set and it's dark now and all the noises from the rest of life have quieted. You can hear the more quiet sounds within your heart beginning to speak to you about the day and how it went. The psalmist's God-directed heart begins to instruct, or really better would be translated correct, to correct him as he looks back and says, this is how you walked, you should have walked like this. Let me guide you onto this path. The Lord's doing that in his life. He blesses the Lord. Directs our thoughts and our actions Godward. This is who I am. This is how to walk after me. And that has the effect of setting the Lord in front of him. Of directing his thinking and his looking Godward so that he's looking at God. And he's seeing through him all the rest of life. It's giving him perspective. Now, obviously, David doesn't mean that he physically set God before him. What I'm talking about is a spiritual setting. He puts him right before his spiritual eyes and it gives him perspective on all that happens all around him. Helps him to look at and deal with the trials that happen, the challenges that happen. And things happen in life. I know as I've had chance to talk with several of you this week, things happen in life. But setting the Lord in front of us gives us some perspective on those things that are hard and painful, yes. But we set the Lord right there too and we see them together, not forgetting about Him. David sets the Lord there and he looks at Him and it gives Him perspective so that He is sheltered and protected and He says that He will not crumble, will not fall, won't be shaken. And so... He rejoices with gladness. His whole being rejoices. You see the response there. I set the Lord in front of me. I'm not shaken in life. And the response is that I'm glorying in Him. I'm glad in Him. My whole being rejoices. Even in death, this beautiful inheritance will not be taken away from me. It's kept for me. He is kept for me. By His sovereign power. Glory to Him. In his presence there is fullness of joy. At his right hand, pleasures forevermore.
That's where he ends. That's the psalm. I love this psalm because the blessed life is all over it. Do you see it in there? He uses these words, full joy, eternal pleasure, glad-heartedness, complete rejoicing. I mean, those words are explicitly in this passage. Not being shaken by life. It's right here. It's a marvelous thing. It's, this psalm is loaded with stuff that deserves to be written on a 3 by 5 card and put on your mirror or memorized, stuck into your mind to help you cope with life. I won't cover it all, but there are two things that I want to surface, make really clear. Just two points. First one, I take primarily from focusing in on the contrasting emotions presented here in this psalm. Here it is in a phrase. Sorrow or joy? Sorrow or joy? It depends on who you run after. There's two contrasting emotions here. There's a lot about joy and gladness and happiness, and the opposite of that is sorrow and misery. You can live life in joy or in sorrow, and the key, that which determines which you live in, the key is who you run after. The God of the Bible or some other God. Verse 4. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. What a profound statement. Think about that. The sentence should make clear to us that God is dealing with people, dealing with us. He's dealing with people on an emotional profit and loss level. Get this. He, the sentence does not say the disobedience of those who run after another god shall multiply. That's surely true. It's not what it says. It lands on the sorrow. This, this is not God giving law and telling us what we should and should not do. There clearly are things we should and should not do, but the emphasis is not on obedience and disobedience. But rather, his instruction is focused on the quality of your life. And this should get your attention. This comes down to where we all live. Verse 4 is about a life of multiplied sorrows. An individual's personal misery. Misery that grows up even while the person is chasing after pleasure and happiness and joy. Nobody sets out to become miserable. But the verse 4 guy finds it anyway. How? By pursuing another god or gods. Do you realize what he means by that chasing after another god? He's not actually saying that there are other deities. He's talking about idolatry, complete with the, the rituals there that are at the last part of verse 4. People have always worshipped idols. That's what David's talking about. Literally in his day, that's what was going on. Now, today in our culture, we don't commonly at least, make physical idols from wood or stone. But we still follow after them. It is still common practice for us. We take parts of the creation, even very good parts of the creation. We take them, 
and we turn them into something that we give our allegiance to, our hope to, we set our affection on. We turn our hearts. That's the key right there. What you turn your heart towards and what you love chiefly. We do that commonly. We look for peace and joy and security in these things of the creation. And when I say we here, I mean all of us. This is common humanity. We are all prone in ourselves to do this. There's more of Forrest's friend Jenny in us than we know. Looking for the right thing, but in all the wrong places. Looking to the creation to fill a role that it was never meant to fill. The place of chief and primary, ultimate satisfaction of the human heart. Not meant to do that, but we try to force it to. Our fallen natures say to us, we talked about this back in Ephesians, our fallen natures grab something here in the creation and they turn it and they say to us, look, look at this, run after it. If you run after this, if you fasten your heart on it, you will find good here. You'll find joy, you'll find happiness, you'll find peace. Or maybe they say, without that, you will never find joy and happiness and peace, so you better run after it and get it. That's what they say. Our fallen natures grab these things and they make idols all the time. Chase after me and you will find good. God is smart enough to fight fire with fire. And we're talking about this several months back. He's smart enough to not answer, chase after me and you will find good with, but it's wrong. You see, those things are not the same. Chase after me and you'll find good, but it's wrong is on a different level. He doesn't say that. He says, chase after me and you'll find good. He says, no, you will not. You'll find sorrow. Let me show you where you will really find good. Let me show you a lot, a portion, an inheritance, a cup that is beautiful beyond description. Let me show you me. It's going to fight fire with fire. He says, okay, yes, let's talk about good. Let's talk about joy. It's not wrong to chase it. You must chase it. But you're chasing it in the wrong place. In my presence, there is fullness of joy. At my right hand are pleasures forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever and evermore. Pleasures forevermore. You must seek them. I am radically in favor of you knowing joy. Let's talk about that. I am radically, more than you know, I am radically in favor of you being happy at the deepest level. Chase it. It's found in me. I am your beautiful inheritance, the satisfaction of your soul. That's why I've given myself to you as your portion. I've not stopped at just giving you good gifts. I give them too. I'm not stopping there though. I know you're going to be tempted to turn to them and to worship them even though they should point you back to me as the giver. I'm not stopping just at those good gifts. I'm going to give you me, myself, says the Lord. Such joy only comes from me directly in my presence, at my right hand. Apart from me, you will find no good. Sorrow or joy? The key is where you look for it, who you run after.
That much is clear in this psalm. It's explicit. He's the portion. In his presence is full joy. We need to slow down here and try to make this a little more concrete to reduce it from the theoretical, become a little more practical if I can, but I can't come, become too concrete because there's no formula. If the key is, who do you run after, what we want to ask is, how do I run after somebody? How do I run after God? I know who I'm supposed to run after, how do I do that? If there were three steps that I could give you and that would guarantee then you'd find it, I'd give them to you. But there's no such steps. We ultimately, at the end of the day, are dependent on the grace of God to work in us. Still, though, while we depend on God's grace, there are things that we can do. They're not automatic steps. The things we need to do. We'll talk about God's grace first, though. Ultimately, the grace of God must open our eyes. Show us what we trust in right now, the other God that we're chasing. Make us aware of that. Pray and ask him, who do I run after? What good thing of yours am I turning to become my primary hope, my primary love? Show me, God. Open my eyes and make it clear to me. We have to see the problem. But most importantly of all, we must see the solution. It's, it's right here. It's black ink on a white page, but it very, very easily remains black ink on a white page. He must open the eyes of our hearts and help us to see Him beautiful. He has to do that. The beauty of the Lord so that we don't trade Him in for some other cheap bauble of false joy. He's got to show that to us. This, this last thing is what I pray for the most. I ask God, open my eyes and show me who you are in all of your glory. I need that because I display, at least to myself, a remarkable ability to read the Bible and not care. I don't know if that's surprising or uncomfortable. I'm the pastor, after all. Don't I get paid to care about this stuff? There's nothing in my position that makes my human heart any less of a human heart than your human heart is. We're in the same place. And I struggle to care sometimes. I know that I can read my Bible. I can look at this and say, wow, great, close the Bible and move on to what's for breakfast. I need the grace of God to change me. And by his magnificent grace, I care more than I used to. And I care about caring more than I used to. He's changing me to long for more of him and to be dissatisfied with the little that I sometimes find. The grace of God at work here. And so I read verses 5 and 6, you are my chosen portion. Or I read verse 9, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. Or read verse 11, in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And I read that and I say, sometimes God, it's not here yet. And I repent where needed. And I ask Him for more. I cry out, God, come, help. Bind me to the saints who will encourage me, the saints in the land. 
Show the scriptures to me. Make it more than ink on a page. Help. I interact with him like that, and by grace, he's changing me, and he will do that for you. He will do the same. He will. Call out to him like that. Cry out to him for that kind of grace. He must do that work in you. But notice, even in the story that I was telling about myself there, there's some process that I have to do that you have to do. You've got to read verses 5, 6, 9, and 11. You've got to pray. You've got to call out to him. Ultimately, he's the one who makes the change, but he's going to bring grace through means. Always does. And to not put ourselves in the scripture and in prayer with the saints of the land is to say, no thank you to the grace of God. I'd like to run after you, but I think I'll instead go for sorrow. You don't want to say that. Don't stay there. Take in his word and pray with repentance if necessary. You must do this for your joy. For your full joy. Not because you have to, but for your joy. If there's not incentive in that, I don't know what else to say. It's clearly the message of Psalm 16. You will find joy if you run after the God of the Bible. Hunt him down and find him. He wants to be found. He's set right here on a table in front of us. That life which we all desperately want. But there is a catch. And that leads me to the second point. Let me introduce this final point with a story. About a year and a half, two years ago, I was working a part-time job in downtown Chicago. And I would ride the commuter train kind of like our, our tracks here, but except it's called the L there because it's elevated. Ride the commuter train downtown once a week to this job. And once while I was waiting on the platform for the train to come, I noticed there was an Orthodox Jewish man standing there. And he was amidst a sea of people all waiting for the train, but he was in his own little world there. And he had before him the psalm book. And he was doing the, the, the habitual practice of reciting the psalms. So he's standing there kind of rocking a little bit, quietly mumbling under his breath. And I saw that and I thought, that's pretty cool. Because I'd been spending a lot of time in the Psalms up to that point myself and had already seen Psalm 16. It already kind of leaped out at me as being an, an incredibly attractive psalm. And I'd written it down in Hebrew because I wanted to recite it and wanted to be able to carry it with me rather than just carry my Hebrew Bible. Recite it because after all it's a poem and it sounds better in the original language. But it's hard for me to read Hebrew, so I was stumbling through it, and I thought, he can read this fluently. That must be neat. He can hear this beautiful poem. And it's full of meaning, and as he cycles back through it every few weeks, he comes to it, it must be gripping to read that. And then it occurred to me, and here's where I'm getting to the point. Psalm 16 does not apply to him. It doesn't apply to him. Why not? Well, there's a, a stunningly sumptuous meal 
spread here in Psalm 16. And he can see it, and he can smell it better than I can, but it's just out of reach on the other side of a chasm that is unfathomably deep, and he can't reach it. It's not for him, at least not so far in his life. The reason is that Psalm 16 carries within it the message that if you chase after God, you'll find joy, but it also carries this message. Fullness of joy is only available in Christ. Fullness of joy is only available in Christ. In His presence, there is fullness of joy, but not everyone can come into His presence. There's only one path to life. Fullness of joy is only available in Christ. See how this psalm surfaces that issue. It's written by David, and it's about his experience with the Lord. But it's more than just David's experience. It trickles down to the generations, to all the people of God, down to you and me, Christian. It comes down to us. But the only reason that David can have this experience with God and the only reason that I or you could have this experience with God is that a path has been opened up to us so that we can get at this table. A path is, exists, been opened up so that we can receive this stunning inheritance and know this joy. The only reason that the psalm can trickle down from David is that the psalm also transcends David. David, God's anointed son, his chosen one who sits on the throne, is actually writing a prophetic psalm that finds its final fulfillment in the anointed one who sits on the throne and is the son, the unique representative of God here on earth. God come to earth in flesh, Jesus. Verse 10. You will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. When he says Sheol here, he's talking about the realm of the dead. It's not exactly hell or heaven. It's the place where people go before they're judged. That's how they conceived of this. So what he's saying is, God, you're not going to abandon me to the condition of death. You will not let your Holy One see the corruption and decay of death. But how can David say that? What he says would not happen, happened. David died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Those are not my words. It's the Apostle Peter's words, preaching a thousand years after David wrote this. Died, went down to Sheol, and decayed. Follow this argument that he's making here. I think it's a pretty interesting one, and it is a knockdown argument. What he's saying to the Jewish people that he's preaching to in Jerusalem at Pentecost is, guys, David wrote this psalm, right? Right. David's writing about himself, right? Right. Wrong. Wait a minute. How's that? Let's walk over to David's tomb and look at his bones. They're right over there. If he's the one he's talking about ultimately, he has been abandoned here to Sheol and his body has certainly decayed. What's going on? Who's he talking about? It's the same argument made by Paul. Paul brings this up in Acts 13 when he's preaching in Antioch of Pisidia. After quoting Psalm 2, he comes to Psalm 16 and says, The Holy One who did not see corruption. 
Who's David talking about? Paul and Peter know. You probably know. Who alone perfectly turned to his Father who was in heaven, always seeking refuge in him and in him alone. Who perfectly submitted to God, saying always, not my will but yours be done on earth as it is in heaven. Who consistently always takes great delight in the saints of the land and never chases after other gods. Who has always known perfect fellowship with God. Who has always walked in wisdom. Who always set the Lord right before him. Who has ascended to the right hand of the Lord in heaven and sits there not having seen decay. Who is the Holy One? Jesus of Nazareth is the anointed, holy Son of God. God come in the flesh. God who knew such fellowship with God because He is God. God who walked the earth without sin. God who went to the cross to become sin for His people so as to open up a path to the inheritance that is this vast, beautiful meal, this portion in this cup. We walk that path by faith not by works. Let me slow this down for a second. Do you see what's happening? The argument that's being made. What is depicted here in this psalm is both glorious and impossible. Absolutely impossible. The Jewish man on the platform, all of us by nature, all of us by ourselves, by our nature, even if we say otherwise with our mouths, all of us by nature in our hearts refuse to seek refuge in the God of the Bible. We don't go there. We refuse to call Him the Lord, the Master, the Ruler of our lives in everything. Instead, we want to call the shots. Accept Him on our terms, according to our stipulations. In the meantime, we're going to go seek pleasure in a thousand other places, a thousand other gods. In the end, all we will know is multiplied sorrows and finally death and decay. There is a sumptuous meal spread for us right there, but we cannot get to it. None of us can in ourselves. None of us ever would. And yet David is writing as if he is in fact at this moment sitting there eating. How is that? Because he is. He is. How did that happen? Well, God had to act and bridge that chasm. If there was going to be any hope for him or for us. And he acted right in the center of history. David is writing and placing his faith, looking forward to this Holy One who would not see decay and would bridge the chasm and provide the inheritance for him. We look back at the same one. Right in the center of history, the long-promised deliverer, the Messiah came and he lived sinlessly where we all sinned. And he went to the cross to atone for those sins of people who trust him. Salvation has always been by faith. David looked forward and placed faith in the coming Holy One who would not see decay. We look back at him. But what needs to be made clear is that apart from this faith, the only verse in this psalm that applies to you is the first part of verse 4.
apart from that faith, this is only a description of where your sorrows come from. That should be sobering. But the clear message is don't stay there. Come to the table. Come to the table through Christ. Come here by faith and know this full joy. Come into the presence of God. Bow before Him. Take Him as Lord. That's the clear message. And it's not because you have to or else. It's because, in this psalm, it's because here's where your joy is. There's no good apart from Him. The psalm again points us to Jesus and to His cross. And I know for most of us here this morning, we've already done that. You've come to Him. This serves a larger purpose than just interesting information for you or a neat place to see Jesus in the Old Testament or a way to understand those statements in the New Testament. It has a larger purpose than that for you. It's to remind you of all that Christ has purchased for you at the cross and to stir up your affections for Him. Do you see that the cross did not just deal with your guilt problem? The cross bought you joy. Because the cross bought you God. It buys you, it creates, it makes a way for you to come into fellowship with Him. The one for whom you were made. The one who was beautiful beyond description. It should stir up your heart and cause you to love Him and worship Him and thank Him. Jesus has done much for you. He's changed your whole life when he saved you. He's connected you to a marvelous inheritance. Worship him. Thank him. Rejoice in him. He is this and more for you. Let me sum it up. One sentence. Rejoice. He is everything for you in Christ. Rejoice. He is everything for you in Christ. Let me pray. God, you are much for us in Christ. And I thank you and I worship you for that. I am blown away by the fact that I can know joy. You've made a way for me to commune with you, and I pray that my brothers and sisters here this morning would be gripped by that in a compelling way, that you would speak to them in the midst of whatever circumstances they're in, and that you would show yourself to them and show them joy. Lord, for those here this morning who don't yet know you, draw them with this good appeal. You can be much for them too and I pray you'd convince them of that and entice them. Thank you God for your word. Thank you for being much for us in Christ. We love you. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. 
We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.